hppodcraft.com. It was a thousand years before the civilizing massing of peoples through which later arose Nineveh, Babylon, and Ekbatana. The nomadic tribe of Jehu, with their donkeys, horses, and cattle, crossed through the wild forest of Zur. As the twilight fell across this great expanse, great flocks of birds were singing, hovering and descending in harmonious broods. Everyone was very tired and silent, looking for a beautiful clearing where the tribe could light the sacred fire, make dinner, and sleep safely from the beasts behind the double row of red blazing flames. The clouds were iridescent, the country polychromatic across the four horizons. The gods blew the song of the nighttime, but still the tribe was walking. A scout appeared, galloping up, announcing a clearing and a pure source of water. That's the opening few paragraphs from J.H. Rosnianya's Zipeus. The Shapes is what that, <laughs> that means. It's a story, as far as I know, unread by H.P. Lovecraft, but selected by a Kickstarter contributor, Steve Dempsey. Steve also happens to be a gaming buddy of mine and a talented writer in his own right. I'd never heard of this story before, but there's an online translation I quickly found when I searched. It's by Jason Colavito, skeptical xenoarchaeologist. That's what we've linked out to in our last show notes and in these show notes. Jason wrote a book I actually own called The Cult of Alien Gods, H.P. Lovecraft and Extraterrestrial Pop Culture, which I recommend. It's a, it's a fun read. He talks a lot about ancient aliens. He's been on the history channels. Uh, he skeptically approaches the, that idea that's called xenoarchaeology, that extraterrestrials were responsible for ancient human monuments. And so clearly this story would be of interest to him. His site provides excellent info about the author, which I'm going to crib some of here because it's written so well. Okay. It says, next to Jules Verne, the Belgian author J.H. Rosny is how I pronounce, pronounce it, but I would assume it's Rony since he's Belgian, probably going to murder all of the names that you hear (laughs) in this story. So murder away. Sorry about that already. But J.H. Roney was the pen name of brothers. Uh, Joseph Henri Honoré Boex and Seraphin Justin Francois Boex. Those guys in 1850s to the 1940s when they were alive. Together, they are known as perhaps the greatest francophone science fiction writer. The 1887 novella, it's hard to pronounce, Zipaus. It's frequently attributed solely to Joseph, however, under his post-1909 solo pen name of J.H. Roni Anya, or Senior. So the Anya is to mean I'm the older one. Though some sources say both writers worked on it, the best evidence suggests that the younger Boex began his partnership with his brother only until 1887, and, and both agreed that the novella was the elder brother's work. So this is the older of the the science fiction writing team. Well, I think, you know, Steve selected this story mostly because he was a contemporary of not only Lovecraft, but H.G. Wells. Right. He was one of the more popular French language sci-fi writers of his time. Yeah. Maybe possibly ever, some people say. How did I never hear this guy? It's so crazy. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Also, this was from Colavito's intro to the story. This novella anticipates many of the themes found in H.P. Lovecraft, including prehistoric visitation from non-anthropoid extraterrestrial beings, their advanced science and culture, and these beings' indifference to the fate of humanity. These themes also resonated with theosophists who saw a reflection of their own ancient astronauts in Roni's work. Theosophists believe that science fiction writers were subconsciously channeling truths about theosophy from the astral or etheric plane. An English language abridgment of the novella, representing only 20% of the text, was published in the Theosophical Journal in 1903. So that was interesting to me because even though this is this masterwork of science fiction, Uh it was only fully translated into English many decades after its initial publication by Damon Knight in 1968, George Slusser in 78, 
uh, this new one, Colavito did himself. But if it was translated into English so late, then was Lovecraft even familiar with this? Only if no. he was reading that Theosophical Journal in 1903, which is entirely possible. Well, he would be 13. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, but it's something that perhaps he looked at oh, later. Well, some, yeah, it's something he could have looked at when he was old. Yeah. Find an old journal from 1903. Possibly. Possibly. But as far as I know, I, you know, I've got Joshi's Lovecraft's library and I, it wasn't in there yeah. as far as I could find it. So, well, it's, uh, it, There's so many similarities to, to things that he wrote about that... It's it's pretty odd. Yeah. Well, maybe it's just that whole collective unconsciousness thing. You know, the the idea that when an idea has its time, that it just kind of comes out. Sure. Well, a lot of people say that this is the first science fiction story. Wow. I, I'm not sure if that's true, but sure. It, it's certainly for the period of the 1890s. I've never seen anything else like this story. It's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> and I gotta admit, I really, really loved it. By the way, our reader this week is Anthony Tedesco, a listener favorite who always knocks it out of the park. Also, a lot of a lot of names for him to deal with. So we appreciate yeah. him coming in and giving it a shot. He's doing it. But I loved this story, and I gotta say, after some of the garbage we've been reading, <laughs> it was such a relief <laughs> to be able to look up after I was done with something and say, "Hey, I really." enjoyed that yeah me too man after doing the derleth and then the lynn carter story which people have been making some hilarious comments and some very astute comments about that particular story and the kind of world building that those authors did there was one from a uh, uh, sellersburg that was a comment on that that was oh right yeah that i really liked and i was just wanted to read it real quick before we get into this because i thought it was a very intelligent way to look at some of the stuff we've been doing lately it said i think that these two writers we've just heard from that's again that's derleth and lynn carter illustrate some great literary issues. It takes great eloquence and a sense of mystery to pull off the Lovecraftian effect on the reader. People tend to make a big thing of Lovecraft's monsters, the principal threat in the stories. If you ask me, they are paper tigers. If they are presented without Lovecraft's masterful theatrics, they are silly and unimportant. Lovecraft is able to make them terrifying because we know so little about them. There's so much interesting buildup, so much literary manipulation of the reader that makes Lovecraft's stories effective. When you focus on the fish people themselves, they are ridiculous. Without Lovecraft, Cthulhu is just another dumb Godzilla or giant bug that will crush buildings and swat planes out of the sky. They are not inherently terrifying. I've read so many mythos stories that throw tentacles, fishy smells, and crumbling houses at you like they expect you to crap your pants. The Mego, the Deep Ones, the Dolls or Bulls or whatever the F they are, are crappy haunted house puppets without the right guy or girl weaving that world with masterful words. Yeah, well, let's get into the story. Now, the location of this story takes place with a prehistoric tribe of people called the Jahu. It's P-J-E-H-O-U. Jahu? Jahu. And perhaps it was set in what is now known as Iraq, because they say that these people give rise to the city of Babylon and Ekbektana, and those are all in Iraq. Okay. But it's a large group of nomads. They live with their livestock. They're looking for water. They send out some scouts. The scouts come back and they say, hey, we found some water. Everybody's really excited. They start moving through this forest. And when they get there, they see some crazy stuff. They first saw the large circle of cones, bluish, translucent, apex upwards, each in volume about half the size of a man. A few bright lines and some rings of dark color dotted their surface and all had at their base a dazzling star-shaped aperture, shining like the sun at midday. Further and just as strangely, planar forms like walking rocks stood behind them, quite similar to birch bark splattered with colorful ellipses. And there were yet, here and there, quasi-cylindrical shapes, varied also, some thin and tall, the others low and squat, all of tan color and dotted green. 
all having the characteristic star-shaped point of light. At first, you're like, okay, what is this? <laughs> My brain can't even make sense I'm of that. A, It's a bunch of shapes. There's some cones. There's some cylinders. There's some discs. Planar forms, so they mean like planes. Like flat, right? Yeah. It's odd. You know, and later, some of these beings are described as only being a cubit and a half tall. Yeah, which is... That's like two feet. They're small, but they're also alive. These things just start rushing at the people, and uh, when they rush at the tribe... The people just look at them trying to figure out what the heck they're seeing. <laughs> the people start dying and everybody starts screaming and they all scatter. Yeah, they're killing everybody. I don't really can't. I, it's hard to understand exactly how they're doing it. They have some kind of heat ray thing or they like. At this point in the story, we don't know what's happening. Uh-huh. They just know that the people are dying. They're they're kind of disintegrating. I was just as surprised as these ancient peoples. I didn't expect this to happen right away. I thought they'd look at them for a while or I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, it's crazy. It turns into a battle right away. But these shapes, they're not able to kill everybody. Plenty of them mm-hmm. es- escaped. And they seem to be a little bit kinder to children and women. They didn't kill as many of them as they killed uh, warriors. Right. And the tribe also realized that the shape creatures uh, gave up when the tribe's people got a certain distance away from where they originally found them. Like there's maybe a territory that they had. So they stayed out of this territory. But one guy from the tribe, who they call the hero, he sounds his horn, gets everybody back together. They rest for the night. But the hero, he goes, I've got to figure out what the heck happened because it's just all a confusing mess. He doesn't get it. So he's going to go into this territory and see what's going on with these creatures. So he sneaks back alone and he finds these shape creatures, which they call forms. They shine and they change color and shape. So they start off like being a cylinder, but then eventually they kind of gradually become a cone or they become one of these flat things. Their colors change a bit. They become purple or green, but very gradually. And inexplicably is not really sure what these changes represent but all of the things have this little star down at the bottom yeah. of the shape yeah, or something yeah. like that and it, it shoots out these rays even in daylight that they shine and dazzle right. these little stars so the hero thinks about this and then he's just like i don't i can't make sense of this i'm getting out of here mm-hmm. so he slips away <laughs> he just doesn't know what to do so he's gonna go get some help chapter two he goes in to find the priests of the sun god and the hero tells them mm-hmm. what he saw in the forest the priests believe him and they're horrified so the priest says, okay, what they need to do right now, start sacrificing some animals <laughs> so the gods will help them out, Right. which I guess is what you do at this uh, time when you're Bronze Age people. But why? I, you know, I've never understood sacrifices. It's common in primitive cultures. I mean, it's it is like universal. Yeah, I don't. But I don't understand because you're going to kill an animal or a person or mm-hmm, whatever it is. Sure. They're just going to rot. And, and how do you know that the god wants that? See, this is what I think happened. Somebody did it once, and whatever they wanted worked out. And then they were like, oh, see, it works. Yeah, I guess that's probably it. But see, it's so crazy that it's common across so many cultures, yeah. and, and it, it just, it wouldn't be my first thing to think of. <laughs> it wouldn't be my 20th thing. That's think. what I'm saying. I would I'd <laughs> say maybe I'll try a dance that'll please the gods, yeah. or, you know, uh, just write a nice letter. Yeah, but, I, I know. you know, kill my horse would be... That's <laughs> yeah, not... It doesn't make sense. No. But they do it. They do it, and they kill a bunch of animals. Mm -hmm. And during one of the ceremonies, the clouds part, and a beam of sunlight shows down on a recently removed heart from one of the animals. And they see that as a sign, and they're like, okay, great. We're going to march off in the woods. The gods gave us their blessing, and we're going to find out what's up with these creatures. And this is the priest as well. They go in. When they get to this clearing, they see the forms again. This time, they've changed a bit. They're the color of the autumn trees, so they're Mm -hmm. kind of a little bit more orange. And the priests think, oh, wait a minute. These, These things are supernatural we should be worshiping them yeah (laughs) that's i mean they're not just some 
you know, demons or said these are beautiful creatures that we should worship. They're probably gods. We we should submit to their power. This fanatic dude, his name's uh, Yushik. He wants to just run up to the creatures and tell them, "You're awesome. I love you." But yeah. the the high priest is like, "No, no, dude." Chill out. We're going to build an altar right here close to them. We're going to kill this horse. we got a beautiful horse right here. Let's kill this horse, and then they'll be appeased. <laughs> the forms move around in a circle, and they have their little shiny uh, inner lights shooting out. After they kill the, the animal, Yushik says, that's it. They're happy that we killed this animal. So he grabs the horse's heart, and he starts running towards the forms. Yeah. And as he runs towards them, they sort of freak out a little bit, and they just turn around, and they vaporize him. They just kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and then they kill everybody. They start just all of them, you know. They have to run away. The, they, Supreme, the Supreme High Priest says, these are implacable gods. <laughs> because they didn't like the dead horse that we threw at them. No, no, they didn't like that at all. That was really their only idea. So the priests are like, well, we can't deal with these gods, so let's just avoid them. They send some dudes out to figure out exactly where their territory is that they don't, mm-hmm. they won't go out of. So they set up these sort of poles in in the ground to show people don't go beyond these borders because right. the forms will will get angry. That gets us into chapter three. The border posts aren't working anymore. The forms are moving past them, and their people are getting killed. They still have a border. It, this was really interesting to me. It, if if there's more of them, then the border grows. Yeah. So the more and they are reproducing out there. Yeah. Somehow. And so the more of the shapes there are, the further their border grows, but there's still like a definite line. It's just yeah. that it's hard for them to know where it's going <laughs> to be because they don't know how many of them there are. All the tribes get together and make a council to figure out what to do. They decide to burn down the forest. That's the only way to do it. It's a good decision. It. That's much smarter than killing a horse. They try it. It doesn't work. They can only burn the edges of the forest for some reason. It won't catch. Maybe it's something that these creatures are doing to prevent it. They don't know. Mm. So the priest decides that it's just too dangerous and told folks that the forest, the whole forest is now just off limits. Nobody go into any part of the forest. Let these creatures just have the forest. Yeah. Two years pass. And a report comes in that dudes that were camping outside of the forest are attacked mm-hmm. by the forms. There were 10 bow shots away, but the border continues to grow. And 300 warriors lose their lives. 300! As a result of that attack. Which, the humans are the complete cockroaches of this story. Not to spoil it for you, but we win because of numbers. And sheer numbers alone. <laughs> yeah. We are definitely the inferior species here. And if, if it weren't for our breeding... That yeah. it, it really is survival of the fittest in its correct interpretation. The species that has more children yeah. is the only one that wins. <laughs> the fact that we have the numbers, because otherwise that's it. And this is a cool thing that happens because the tribes realize that they're going to lose, that these things are eventually just going to keep expanding until they kill all people. Right. So some folks start to make death cults. Right. The primitive philosophers had fashioned a bitter cult, a cult of death preached by pale prophets worshipping a darkness more powerful than the stars. A darkness that would engulf and devour the holy light, the shining fire. Everywhere around these solitudes, one met motionless, emaciated shadows of men of silence who, from time to time spreading among the tribes, recounted their horrific dreams of the twilight before the approaching great night and of the dying of the sun. That is some Lovecraftian stuff right there. Certainly, but it's cool how this conflict, the author is showing these different aspects of humanity. How first they try to worship things and then they realize they're going right. to die, but then they turn that into a form of worship. All very unreasonable and none of it's working. Next, we you know we get into reason finally enters the picture in chapter four. This guy, Bakun. 
And he's a bit of an outlier. He's the brother of a high priest, so people let him be on his own, but he is not nomadic. Right. He sets up a farm. He's got a few wives. Folks don't really know what he does out there. They're just like, why is he setting up a farm? That's not what we do. We're nomads. But since his brother's the priest, people just let him be. Plus, a bunch of people think he's really wise because he's got the, you know, he's got the good life out there. And he's also a good guy. If people are starving or there's problems with foods or there's shortages, he will give people food. Mm -hmm. Like he'll take them in and take care of them. So all around, he sounds like a pretty great guy. It's a Garden of Eden, they say, where he lives with his 30 children and his his wives. (laughs) But this was interesting. There's three things that he believes. First, that sedentary life, that farming, is preferable to run around. Right. Being a nomad. Second, he believed that the sun, moon, and stars were not gods, but luminous masses. And third, he said that man must only believe in things proven by experience. Man. So he is the scientist enters the picture. He is. The tribe leaders don't really like him too much because of his hippie ways. (laughs) But since they're kind of out of options, they thought that Bakun might have the solution to this problem of the shapes. (laughs) Right. Because he's a weirdo, they think he must have some witchcraft. That's my favorite. So what they actually think he's going to help them with is he's going to use witchcraft to defeat the things. And what he does is he says, actually, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to study them Yeah, for a a few years. Yeah, that's That's not what they want. They're like, what? All right, well, good enough. I mean, hopefully. Well, something. Yeah, nobody else is doing anything. They don't want to do. So that's what he does. He goes out there and like a scientist, he just studies them for a couple years. Like he's out there. He wants to find out what they're going to do. So he writes a book. Well, it's not really a book. It's um, some stone tablets because, yeah. you know, this, this is a primitive society. But he, right. you know, writes down what these things are and he's going to get them these books. Now, this big section of the story here is actually his writings about the creatures. And he's the one that names them Zipahus. Right. His horse is also very important to this endeavor. <laughs> right. Because he needs to get within the boundaries to really study the things. And then the minute they notice him, they come over to kill him. And he takes yeah. off with his fast horse because they have to yeah. be within... Like, if they touch you, but you're able to escape the, the borders, you'll probably survive. They need to yeah. kind of be around you for a sustained period of time to, to disintegrate you. So He figures that out, mm-hmm. and we get all this. This next big part of the book is just him trying to understand what it is they do, what are their strengths, what their weaknesses are, all, all that stuff. But yeah, they have to... It takes a while for them to disintegrate you, and right. the more that they get around, sometimes four or five of them will team up and try and disintegrate something. It'll go faster, and they can disintegrate... <laughs> You know, bigger things. Yeah, that's what we're learning in chapter five, which are these bits from the book. Because they kill, they call any animal that comes into their area, they'll, they'll kill. Yeah. And they do it yeah. indiscriminately. And the weird thing is they don't consume them. They don't eat whatever they kill. They just reduce them to ashes. So it's yeah. why, why they're even doing it, I guess, for dominance. It could be, or maybe there is some way that they are getting sustenance from them. Like oh, maybe that's they're true. sucking out their energy. or so. Maybe it's not like a beam that shoots something out. Maybe it's a beam that sucks something in. Hmm. You know, yeah. like the life essence. I don't know. It, but th- that's what's cool about the story is that you don't really get any explanations. You get the insight from a Bronze Age dude. Yeah, right. So, you know, he, he doesn't know what the heck's going on, but he... He can tell you what he sees, and that's and that's what you get. He says they're definitely alive, and they're definitely intelligient, because mm-hmm. they seem to hang out with each other, and they communicate. They do shoot these beams out. They kill small animals. It takes one creature to kill a small animal, but they got to team up for bigger things. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it doesn't happen quickly, because he actually got a beam on the hand, and he felt it, and it was warm, but he was able to get away, yeah. so he wasn't instantly you know, burned up. Right. The different forms... 
seem to be the same creatures, just changing shape. Yeah, so sometimes they're rock-like, sometimes they're cones, sometimes they're just like bent planes. The color changing doesn't seem to really correlate with any environmental stimuli or emotional state, because sometimes they fight, and they're one color, and then they'll fight, and then they're a different color. So mm. he's just like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. But he did see them fight to the death once, and when they, one of them kills one of the other ones, they collapse, they just kind of fall to the ground in on themselves. They condense, get really small, and then they petrify. And he's able to collect some of those bodies. But the good thing about that is up till then, people didn't know that they weren't, these things could just be immortal. There could right. be no way to kill them. So this is the total, if it bleeds, we can kill it, you know. Well, <laughs> the, the, they can kill each other. Yes. That's, so that's like, well, at least they die, but I don't know if humans could kill them. They right. can kill each other, but it remains to be seen. But he also notices that they make friends. Yes, they have personalities, right? Yeah, so some of them hang out with other ones, but not some others. And some of them like to be alone, and some of them like to always have company. Uh, and to me, I wonder if this was the author trying to maybe humanize the creatures a little bit. Well, sure. I mean, yeah. it's basically showing you that they have intelligence and that... Uh, right. They're not completely inscrutable, maybe. It really speaks to his frustration in studying them because they'll do things that he thinks he understands. Right. But then he can't be sure if that's what it is or if he's just uh, putting that on them because he's the one, you know, because he's humanizing them. Right, exactly. He's not sure if they have houses or not. Because he can't get close enough to know whether or not they actually build structures to live in or, or anything like that. I love that he says, he says, like most things about the Zipahus, it is beyond the intelligence of man to understand it. So he, he's aware of his own limitations as well. Yeah. He's a good scientist. He's also able to study. I mean, he's the first one that really identifies, oh, it's the population growth that allows them to expand their boundaries. And he figures out how they reproduce. Yeah. He notices that they do it four times a year, just before the equinoxes and solstices. And three of them, they form together. They merge into one yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, then this large thing makes kind of an ellipse shape. And they stay like that for a day. And when they separate, a gas comes out of it and the gas kind of coalesces in the air above where they were for like 10 days. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it turns into a cone. And then two months later, it becomes an adult. I mean, this is kooky stuff. Yeah, it's pretty The story wild. was written in, in 1887. Yeah. To me, this sounds like 1970s sci-fi stuff. Totally. But it's not. <laughs> it's 1887. It's crazy. It's great. Uh, Bakun is not sure how they sense, the, sense things because they don't obviously have any organs. They don't have eyes or ears or anything like that but they can definitely sense people and animals at long distances and they never seem to mistake anything like a plant for a rock they always just seem to know exactly what it is that they're doing all the time right even better than humans because he says there's there's things i might have mistaken that they don't so it's it they have something like a visual sense but it might even be more than visual yeah. because it seems like they can even see through things yeah you can't hide behind a tree or anything like that they're going to know you're there and they also communicate with their lights bakun thinks that it's a language because they use their lights this is crazy too they use their lights the little beamy things to trace symbols on to each other mm -hmm. and these symbols well he thinks that they're talking to him because they do them pretty fast and he starts to recognize certain symbols but he doesn't really totally get the language yeah, like they make an omega sign. That means it's a, an alert. He sees same, some things repeat over and over. Right. But again, it's hard to know what they mean. He knows that they must be having some kind of abstract thought, though, because they'll hang out and just talk for long periods of time. For them to be doing that, they're not just communicating basic things. At some point, it has to get a little more abstract than that. So he knows that they're having human-like conversations. Right. 
that are about complicated things. And he notices that the personalities are, are different as well, that some are really fierce and they're perpetually hunting cats and birds. And mm -hmm. then there's other ones that are more merciful that just don't kill animals and let them live in peace. Yeah, that was interesting to me. So there are some pacifistic uh, types within yeah. this. You know, that's kind of interesting because up till then they seem sort of, <laughs> you know, they're just killing everything indiscriminately. Right. But there are some who probably don't uh, agree with that. Yeah, and they're and, and they they're unified. But here it says left to their own devices when they're not being attacked, they aren't all like that. He sees them signaling to one another and them repeating it. And he figures out, wait a minute, this is one of the older ones teaching one of the younger ones something because they're repeating the symbols back to them. And if it does it wrong, the older one corrects the younger one. So right. that there's some kind of education that goes on. They don't just uh, instinctually know things. They have to educate one another. These lessons were very wonderful in my eyes, and of everything about the Zipahoos, there is nothing that held my attention so, nothing that concerned me more during my sleepless nights. It seemed to me that it was here, at the dawn of the race, that the veil of mystery was about to open, where a, a simple, primitive idea might gush forth and enlighten for me a corner of the deep darkness. No. No, nothing has deterred me. I have watched this education for years, and I have tentatively guessed at countless interpretations. How many times did I think I had seized a furtive glimmer of the essential nature of the Zipahoos, an extrasensory glimpse, a pure abstraction that, alas, my poor faculties drenched in flesh were never able to pursue. Bakun's perspective on this. I mean, he's really a modern scientific thinker. Mm -hmm. And it leads it to him to a conclusion that kind of sucks, which is we can't share with them. The more they expand, the more they kill all the animals that are in their territory. Yeah. And if they keep doing this, then they're just going to take over the earth. So we've got to figure out how to kill these guys. He goes, well, it's time for me to start doing some scientific experiment and seeing if I can kill them. So he goes to see Dennis the Menace. First test slingshot. Yeah. He gets a slingshot, he gets up there, he starts, you know, pelting them with stones. Doesn't affect them at all. No. Like, they don't even try to avoid them. They yeah. just sort of notice that he's there and then come after him. So he goes, okay, I'm going to try some arrows. But this time, the arrows, they get a little nervous. And they try to sort of defend themselves. And they move out of the way a little bit, or they try to, to move through. But still, the arrows bounce off of them. So this makes him think, maybe they have a weak spot. Maybe mm -hmm. I need to hit them in a certain place. So he starts aiming at the glowing star, which is a pretty, I mean, I, that's what I would do too. Right. When he does that, they'll turn it away from him, away from yeah. the arrows. So he goes, aha. And when they, when he's doing this, they go, well, well I'm going to try and stay out of range of that bow. So the fact that they're threatened and that they move that spot away tells him that's probably where the vulnerability is. Getting into the second half of the book. Bakun goes back home. He gets his son to build him an awesome bow, a bow that can shoot three times as far as a normal bow. Goes over to the forms and he starts shooting them with this crappy bow and they get a false sense of security. Yeah, some good trickery. And they go, oh, so they stop even trying to avoid the bows, just kind of ignore him and his yeah. crappy bow. But then once he waits for one of them to reveal their star to him, <laughs> he swaps out the bow, boom, boom, it hits the star, it's dead. Yeah. It does the whole shrinking and petrifying into the big pile and it worked. Which is great. He's super happy about it. He's like, yes, we can kill him. I love it. I'm happy. But then when the night comes, it says, their fellow shadow on my happiness, the sorrow that man and Zippahoos could not coexist, that the terrible condition of life for one was premised on the annihilation of the other. He's, he's yeah. sad about it. To the third part of the book of Bakun, 
He goes to the high priests of the tribes. He says, you know, we've got to unite to fight the forms. We've got a thousand archers to surround the area and we're going to attack them because now we know that arrows, if we hit the little stars, that'll work. But when they go to attack the forms, the forms just turn to their sides. The archers can't hurt them. And then the forms kill all the archers. Right. So the folks are freaked out and start thinking that Bakun was full of it. Uh, And to prove himself, Bakun's going to go out there and show them that he can kill one. One of his sons says, don't go. You're the only one who knows about the forms. You're the expert. If you die, we're we're lost. All of humanity is lost. Let me go out and do it. I'm going to do it with a knife because I'm going to get in close to it. And get it that way, because with a bow, I'm just never going to work. And he's like, well, son, you've got a good point, and I've got 29 other sons, so sure, go. <laughs> and he does. He does a real panthery trick out there. He jumps around, gets in, stabs one of the guys in the star. Boom. He dies. So everybody witnesses this and says, oh, okay, he's right. We can kill these things. And then what happens, we can we can kind of blow through this. There is a, a number of chapters that summarize this very lengthy war with the Zipahoos, battle by battle. And... It's a huge army. I mean, they've, they've gathered up all of the different tribes of men to help yeah. them do this. It's 100,000 men. Mm-hmm. And if this is supposedly, if this story was, let's say, 5,000 BC, maybe it was 10,000 BC. Yeah. There's only like 5 million people on the planet. Right. So 100,000 men, that's a lot. And there's only like 4,000 of the forms out there. But it takes so many humans uh, between 12 to 18 humans to kill one of the forms. They're losing so many per one of these that they kill. I mean, they're just th- he's just got to throw numbers at them. Yeah. It's the only way to do it. And that that's what they continue to do. Unfortunately, the forms are highly intelligent. They yeah. keep adapting to their tactics. So all of these battles are big back and forth. Sometimes the humans are winning. Sometimes the forms are winning. But ultimately, the humans and their numbers prevail. They finally start destroying the forms. The earth belongs to men. Two days of fighting destroyed the Zipahus, and the whole area occupied by the last 200 was razed. Every tree, every plant, every blade of grass was killed. And I, I finished for the education of the peoples of the future, helped by my sons Lum, Aza, and Simo, inscribing their history on granite tablets. And here I am at the edge of Zur in the pale night. A coppery half-moon stands at the west. Lions roar to the stars. The river placidly wanders among the willows and its eternal voice tells of the passage of time, the melancholy of perishable things. And I bury my face in my hands and a cry of sorrow arises from my heart. For now that the Zipuhus are dead, my soul regrets it, and I ask the unique one what fatality willed that the splendor of life be tainted by the darkness of murder. That's the end. A great ending. I love that their victory is always tainted by the fact that they had to wipe out this other species and and that that he feels terrible about it. Yeah. It's unfortunately just the law of, of nature. Obviously, they can't communicate with one another, so and they're very aggressive as well. So, And that, the fact that they can't communicate with one another, is really novel and something that you don't see in a lot of science fiction. I feel like this reminds me a little bit of, well, I should say Starship Troopers reminds me a little bit of this. Yeah, sure. Where they're a very alien force that they can't really get a grip on. Yeah, and the, my favorite part of that movie is it's a little subversive because are the good guys really the good guys? 
Right. They declare a genocidal war on this other species because of a conflict that I'm not even sure happened. Right. I mean, there's right, like, yeah. there's yeah. some kind of interesting stuff going on in there. But yeah, God, just such a good, good story. And things like this must have happened for primitive peoples. I mean, we certainly were competitive with the Neanderthals. Well, and each other. I mean, there yeah. are there are groups of, of people that, I mean, obviously still fight. Sure. And well, you know, when the Native Americans used to go to war, it was total war. You know, you had to wipe out the entire other tribe. Yep. It wasn't like take prisoners and kind of once you win, sign a treaty and they got to be over there anymore. That's not the way it was. It was like, no, we get all of this, we get none of it. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It's a really well-written story. I, again, this is translated from French, so mm-hmm. it just might be a really good translation of it. But it's really well-paced. It's super interesting. It's so different from anything else at the time. And yeah, very forward-thinking. I, I really want to thank Steve Dempsey for picking this out. It's I'm glad you turned me on to it. Yeah, me too. Great Great choice. Thanks so much for uh, picking this. I'm, I'm really glad I got to read it. And I'm evangelizing it now to lots of other people. You got to read the Zipahu story. <laughs> <laughs> so next week, we are doing another story that was picked by a Kickstarter backer and friend of ours again, Kip Barnes. A great story by Robert E. Howard and a Conan story. The Tower and the Elephant. I know that one. I've read it a few times. I have to. It's a fantastic story. I really enjoy it. So I'm looking forward. We're probably going to have to take a couple episodes for that one because it's a little longer. I also want to once again thank our reader, Anthony Tedesco. You are a treasure. Thank you so much, sir. And with that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Something mysterious is stirring in the deep waters off the coast of Northern California. Fishermen at Pillar Point Harbor and Half Moon Bay have been reporting bizarre sightings of huge alien creatures, large 